Gracious Lord, we're very thankful that you've gathered us, um, not just here to Sunday School, Lord, but gathered us into your community, um, your loving um, communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Be with us now, Lord. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit, um, through your Word, and through, um, Lord, whatever I have to offer, which is nothing, God. I just pray that you'll um, expand it and increase it, and Lord, um, calm us, deconstruct us, and uh Give us a new self in Christ, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I don't know if you saw the title and that's what attracted you to this or if it was in the living room. You thought, yeah, I really just want a cozy seat. But um, I would have totally come for just the living room. But I didn't mean for this class to be kind of a New Year's theme. I didn't. I planned it like a month ago, and I wasn't thinking about New Year's, but I could see where easily the title would be New Year's, um, one step forward, two steps back. So this is not going to be a pot shot at New Year's resolutions if that's what you wanted to hear. It's a little too easy, especially here on the Advent. Um, I think it's real easy to say, oh, New Year's resolutions, they don't work out. You know, we have sin nature. Um, might as well not do that. So make your New Year's resolutions or don't. I don't care. I don't have a, a dog in that fight. Uh, that's not a good way to put that. I don't have a horse in that race. The dog in the fight thing is a little controversial with the Michael Vicks and all that going on. But um, I'll refrain from that. And I'm on recording. Now everybody hears that. Um, anywho, well, one step forward, two steps back. When we're small enough here, um, we can kind of chat. Um, what did you think this class was going to be about? Or did you, did you even care about that? I didn't know I was going to ask you. Okay. That might be rude to ask. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll give you a little secret. Um, the titles at the Advent are supposed to, this is probably not anything I'm supposed to say, but it's supposed to be kind of like snippy and, and short and kind of like get people drawn in. It's not supposed to kind of reveal your, your cards. So I kind of had flexibility. I could do whatever I wanted to do. And I have so much respect for people who teach and, and preach every week. I mean, I teach... Um, youth every week, but I once have to get up and do it every week in front of adults and be kind of spick and span and buttoned up. Uh, it's hard to do. I've had a whole month to prepare for this, uh, and I'm kind of embarrassed that um, I kind of laid around Christmas and New Year's, and I'm sure many of you got to do the same thing. But yeah, one step forward, two steps back. Um, really, it's about the Christian life, but but life in general. Um, this whole notion of we get we get forward, we get ahead in life, and then the moment you you get ahead, you feel like there's something else that you miss. There's something. There's something that's really um, has come and, and kind of ruined whatever progress you made. Uh, one step forward, two steps back. Um, I don't know if you can relate to this, but it's, it's that sort of thing where um, you've had this, this big thing ahead of you and you, you finally got it accomplished, maybe a big payment you were wanting to make or um, a big project that you finished, then you realize there's maybe unintended consequences on the backside of that, uh, things that you didn't see coming. Uh, maybe maybe a, with with kids, one kid you finally get squared away and they're off to school or, or doing whatever, and then the other one just falls apart. Um, one step forward, two steps back. Um, and I think we all can relate to that. We can relate to the idea that um, we think we're in control. We step forward, we get something going, and then something that we didn't expect falls apart on the on the back end. Um, so I've got a few things up here uh, that are going to kind of help me. If you got a Bible, um, you can turn to Mark chapter ten. Um, that whole story of the rich young ruler, which is very familiar. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. I'll, I'll read it later. But um, that's where, where, where we'll be today. And I think there's sort of a, I guess, an illusion about ourselves that we think that we are in control. And again, this is nothing new if you've been around the Advent or really just in church. It's not just an Advent thing. It's, I don't want to take credit for that as being just an Advent thing. But uh, a church thing is the whole idea is we're not in control. You know, we, we're praying to someone who is in control. That's the whole thing of prayer is we, we say we're not in control. But there's an illusion that, think, that we think we are in control. We think that we, we have it under, under our thumb. Um, and so the rich young ruler is really, is really a great example of that. So I'll, I'll go ahead and read. It's Mark chapter 10, 
um, verses 17 and following. And I'm having a hard time seeing it, actually. I wonder if there's more light. Here's a lamp over here. Pardon me. Uh, no bother. That's all right. We'll make it. All right. Mark 10, verse 17. And he was setting out on a journey, on his journey. Uh, and as, as he was doing this, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person um, to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God, um, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. All right. We'll stop there. So you've heard this, this passage before. It's, it's real famous. It's in all three of the Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, tell the story about the rich young ruler. Rich young man um, is what this says. But um, there, there's this, that, that illusion of the self being in control. And we all have this. We all, it's, no one's immune from it. We all have this illusion that we're in control. It's an illusion. It really is. And so he comes to Jesus. He approaches him. And his question, right from the, he started off on the wrong foot. He says, good teacher, what must I do to, etern- uh, to inherit eternal life? And being good Protestants and, and good Catholics and, and good Christians, really, uh, we already know that's, that's no good. Um, I brought some help with me today. Um, you've probably seen this book around. It's a book called On Being a Theologian of the Cross by Gerhard Ferdy. It's kind of a, a Protestant classic here the last 20 years or so. And there's, there's a couple of copies in the, in the, um, the bookstore. And if you've been on Mockingbird or any of those websites, it's kind of their best foot forward. Um, kind of ironic to say that because we don't... The, the rich young ruler, he's trying to put his best foot forward, but um, I, that's kind of a joke. Um, even with our best foot forward, we, we have nothing to offer. And he doesn't realize that. And he comes to Jesus and says, um, you know, I've, I've done all these things. Um, I've, you know, I've kept all these commandments that, that you've given me. And Jesus quickly says, okay, that's great. That's, that's your best foot forward, but that's still not good enough. Your best foot forward isn't, isn't good enough. So that one step forward, two steps back, the reason it's two steps back is because even our best self even that one step forward, which is our best, it's only one step. The, our worst parts of us ruin it all. It's two steps. It's three steps back. It's four. It's, it's infinitely back. Um, so even our best can't, can't bring us to progress. But the rich young ruler, the rich young man, he's still under that illusion. And we're all under that illusion that really we can, we can bring our best. We can contribute our best, and God will he'll honor that. Uh, and honoring that, he'll give us eternal life. And so um, the response of the people, um, at, you know, Jesus says, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have. And, and what's his response? Of course, he's, he's broken. I mean, it, it destroys him. He's disheartened. And it's funny, it's not just him, it's, it's the people too. The people respond, well, if he can't get in, Jesus, who in the heck can? Like, who is good enough? If he's not good enough, who is good enough? And Jesus gives his, his great response. 
Um, with God, it is possible. You know, with man, it's impossible. With God, it's possible. So with this whole idea of on being a theologian of the cross, I just kind of spell it out for you a little bit. Um, this is a little bit by Gerhard Ferdy, but he's, he's commenting on Luther uh, and Luther's Heidelberg Disputation of 1518. And, and Luther's setting up these two, kind of two ways of thinking about the world. There's two ways we all think about the world. And naturally, we're all predisposed to what he calls a theology of glory. And don't get hung up on the theology part. I know theology sounds like a fancy, a theo- that's for people in seminary or people who are pastors. Uh, anybody who, who lives and breathes is a theologian. We all kind of think about God. Whether we believe in him or not, we're kind of already a theologian. We already have an opinion about God. Um, you may think that that's not fair, but um, we really are. We all have an idea of who God is. So don't, don't worry about um, being an academic the- uh, theologian. That stuff usually doesn't help people anyways. It's usually, I read this stuff sometimes, and it's just like, what's the, what's the point? I mean, it's, it's so highfalutin. Where does it touch reality? Anyway, so don't get hung up on the theologian part. So, a theologian of glory is someone who, according to Luther, this is, you can take it for what it's worth, but a theologian of glory wants to bypass suffering, bypass difficulties, um, bypass pain, uh, bypass the cross even, to get at the glory, the good stuff. Um, So, putting our best foot forward, not recognizing the two steps back. Um, Wanting to see our best self and not wanting to acknowledge our worst self. Whereas a theologian of the cross, so this is the, the counterpoint to that, Theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is, calls a spade a spade, sees a thing for what it actually is, uh, doesn't bypass pain, doesn't bypass suffering, doesn't bypass difficulty, goes right through it, knows that that's the only way. So our two steps back, it's a necessary part of the process. It's not something we can avoid, even though we try as we might. So with New Year's, with the resolutions, I'm not, again, not a pot shot at resolutions, but we want to think that we can fix ourselves. We don't want to, you know, we might say, oh, the, the bad parts of us, we need to we kind of improve those. But our best parts, hey, that's good. Our best parts, we, we don't have to fix those. We might can improve them just a little. Uh, but just like the, the rich young man, we've kept those, God. Honor that. So, so Luther has this idea of theologian of glory versus a theologian of the cross. And so it should be an easy answer, but which is the rich young man? Is he a theologian, is he a theologian of glory or theologian of the cross? Glory. Glory, totally. It's, it's an, yeah, it was an easy one. But... <laughs> But there's something we we got to see a little closer than ju- than just that. Um, he wants to bypass the cross. And if you flip back, if you have your Bible, if you flip back to Mark eight, um, Jesus just gets done um, telling telling his disciples. He's foretelling his death and resurrection. Um, so Mark eight thirty one, kind of that area. And who's the first person that kind of? So Jesus says, look, and the Son of Man is going to go. He's got to suffer. He's going to have to die on a cross. In three days he'll rise again. Who's his first sort of naysayer? Who's the first person that comes to him and says, who? Yeah, Peter, St. Peter, St. Peter uh, is the first kind of theologian of, of glory uh, after, after this. He's the one who says, look, Jesus, suffering is not a thing messiahs do. I don't know if you know that, but messiahs don't suffer. Uh, you have to bypass that, Jesus. You can't go to the cross. And what is, what is Jesus' response to him? Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. And he, he's even more harsh than that. He says, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. Um, that's, that's our Lord, by the way. Um, okay, so back to, back to Mark 10. Um, the the rich young man is, is a theologian of glory, just like Peter, just like we all are. We all are theologians of glory naturally. We want to bypass pain. We want to bypass um, difficulty. And so I want to read a couple of theses to you. Uh, it's just, um, you think of Luther, you think of, um, you think of what? The, nailing the, the 95 theses to the door. That's the big one. That's the one that kind of sets off the Reformation. 
But I think pound for pound, uh, Luther's great kind of work comes in the Heidelberg Disputation. So here's the first thesis. He's got, uh, I don't know the number, I think it's 27, but don't quote me on that. I'll just read a couple. The first one, thesis one. The law of God, the most salut salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance humans on their way to righteousness, but rather hinders them. All right, you get that? The law of God. So what is the law of God? We kind of we hear that language every once in a while. You know, the communion service, we hear the law of God. We hear um, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, on these two things hang all the law and the prophets. And of course, what's our great response after that? Lord, have mercy upon us. We can't keep it. And, and Luther's saying the same things. The law of God, um, it cannot advance humans on their way to righteousness, but rather hinders them. That sounds controversial, doesn't it? That sounds like, wait, wait a minute. Didn't, didn't God give the Ten Commandments? Didn't God give us the law? Wasn't it for our good? And, and we can shake our heads. Yes, it was, but it cannot, according to Luther, and I think according to St. Paul in the Bible, it cannot advance humans on their way to righteousness, but rather hinders us. All right, Theses 2. Thesis 2. And then we'll stop for a moment. We'll talk about that. So Thesis 2 says, Much less, much less than um, the law, can human works, which are done over and over again with the aid of natural precepts, so to speak, lead to that end, that end of righteousness. Okay, so Thesis 1 and Thesis 2. I think everyone knows, just like I talked about earlier, those two steps back, those, those worst parts of us, the crises, uh, the parts of us that we, um, we want to bypass and we don't want to admit to people, uh, those parts we can all, we can all say... Obviously, God doesn't really honor those. He doesn't see those and say, yes, you're two steps backward. Yes, you're sinful parts of you. Yes, the parts of you that fall apart. That's what gets you into, into heaven. I mean, everyone agreed to that at the Reformation. The Catholics agreed. Um, the Protestants agreed. Totally. The, the worst parts don't get us in. The controversy was, what about the good works? Do the good works do anything for us? And so the kind of the Roman answer was, well, yes, they do. Yes, our good works, they do provide for our salvation. Um, and, that's, that's a caricature. I mean, I hope you understand that. But the Protestant, the Protestant move was, no, they don't. Even our good work, even our best, even our best does not contribute to salvation. In fact, it, it keeps us away from it because it, it engenders pride. So just like with, with our, our passage in Mark 10, the people are saying, well, look at the rich guy who's very moral and upright. If he can't get in, who can? The Protestants are saying the same thing. Yeah, who can? Even our best can't get in. So, on being a theologian of the cross, uh, Luther's already started saying the law and our good works, they do nothing for us. The rich young man, all of your, all of your hard work, it does nothing for you. It does nothing. Why does it do nothing? That sounds so harsh. I mean, could you imagine going to someone, um, and I look around you people, I know all of you. Uh, I know your faces, I know your names, uh, and I know you're here often, but think about being out on the street with someone who doesn't go to church, and is kind of a good person. You know, maybe volunteers their time, gives a lot of money, does that sort of thing. It'd be hard to look them in the face and say, that's worth nothing. I mean, you wouldn't want to do that. It'd be very insensitive. But at the end of the day, I think we all have to come to this realization We all have to come, that it is nothing. So I'm going to go quickly uh, toward the end here. Uh, I think it's thesis 18. Um, and this is, again, not something you would jump out of the gate and say to someone who's never been to church, but thesis 18 says, It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. So even before we know Christ, even before we're, we're prepared to come to him, so the rich young man turns away. He's sad. He leaves. <coughs> he, but he is brought to despair, it seems to me. Um, and Luther's saying, before, before we can even come to Christ, we have to be brought down low. We have to be brought to despair. We have to be deconstructed. So that best self that we project, and we project it all the time. We project it on Facebook. I mean, who on Facebook puts their worst? Nobody. Who on the Internet puts their worst? 
Nobody. We're always, I mean, we all come to church dressed as, as best as we, th- we think we can. I'm, I'm a little wrinkled today. But, um, and that's my best foot forward. That's kind of miserable. But we, we project a self. We project a reality that's really not true. It's an illusion. Um, so even in that projection of that self, that, that's our best, that our best foot forward, our best that we have to offer. It still is nothing. And so when you come to realize even that, even your, even your projected self is nothing, that, that causes despair. That causes what the, what the philosophers call angst. You know, this existential crisis. Like, who am I? What am I here for? Brought to complete despair. I think that's where the rich young man is. And I think that's where, if any of us are honest with ourselves, we're, we're probably there more often than we're anywhere else. Um, and maybe I'm preaching to the choir, I don't know. And maybe I'm not. But um, I think it's the most difficult thing to do is to look in the mirror. And I'm not talking about the physical mirror, but looking at who we really are. Um, I've just, I'm looking at Mary over here. I've just gone through a discernment process with the Advent. Um, that was the most painful process I've gone through in a long time. Like being honest with who I am, what I am, what God says about me. Uh, it hurts. Uh, and I put my best foot forward and um, it's still not enough. Um, it's still not enough. So let's pause for a moment. Are there any questions on kind of the concepts? Theologian of glory, theologian of the cross. Sure. I would assume that in that first thing that you read about Luther, that he is referring to the law of having no value whatsoever in terms of justification. Because I read Psalm 1, Lord, I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. You know, your law is good. I mean, I would think that would be in terms of sanctification. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah. Yeah. So the terminology of law. I think he's using law and sort of that existential law being that thing that accuses me, uh, but also, but also being, you're talking about sanctification. So that's the big struggle in the New Testament. The big, the big problem in the New Testament is, given the fact that we're justified by grace, how do we still treat the law? How do we treat the Christian life? Is it still, is it still good for that? And it's funny that you mentioned this. I think we're doing a, I say we as, as if I'm a part of it. In January, this is a series on on sanctification. Uh, Mark Genelette's, um I guess, moderating it. So you have kind of the Lutheran perspective, which I'm, I'm presenting. I have to say I'm a little biased towards. And then we have more of the Reformed perspective, which I think Bill Boyd is doing the Reformed, and one of my professors, Peter Malish, is doing the Lutheran. Really something cool to, to come to if you get the chance. And if not, I'm sure they'll record it and have it on the website. But yeah, Luther, let me just let me read the first thesis, and Wait, let's get that, our... Would Luther not say the law is good for yeah. sanctification, for showing what pleases God? And, you know, That's the debate. I mean, that really is the debate. No, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Um, I, I think the, the the cat's not out of the bag on that one. I think a lot of people can interpret Luther one way or the other. I, I think, I, again, I'm predisposed to kind of say that even with sanctification, our law and good works are not going to, they're not going to contribute. And I think when I read Galatians 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's fruit, not my fruit. When you say contribute, you mean to justification or to sanctification? Yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're pressing me on that. means it's done, I mean, it's the, it's finished. Yeah. If you're justified, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, like I said, I'm glad I'm glad you're pressing me on this because this is this is this has caused numerous and, and unending debate in the church, and that and that is the debate. At what point can we separate justification and separation? So justification being, um, yeah. What did I say? Separation. Oh. Uh, justification and sanctification. At what point can we separate them? And, and there's passages in the New Testament that say um, that we are sanctified. Not that we will be or that we're in the process, that we are. And there's other places that seem to be this process. 
Um, I don't want to get hung up too much on this, uh, and partly because it's a little above my pay grade, but also uh, this, this, great, this great series in the future. But I will say the debate is, are they separate or are they together? Are we, when we're justified, are we also sanctified, or is it a continual process? And at what point do we bring something to the table? And I think Luther, and I think this is maybe our best instinct should be, even in sanctification, I want to take myself out of it. I don't, even, I don't even want to think about it. I want, kind of like fruit that grows on a tree. I don't think fruit thinks about what's going on. It thinks about what it's contributing. It just kind of does its thing. And I know that's, that's too easy to, to say that. Um, it has to have sunshine, fertile soil, water, all those things. Yeah. Which I kind of think of as worship, confession, you know, prayer, scripture but reading. All those things come from the outside. It's nothing that we do. Right. All exactly. of it comes from right. our gifts. From exactly. God. Right. I like that. And so, <clears throat> yeah. I, th- I think you're right. And I, I, that's that's where I want to hang my hat. It's 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 on the outside. Even though we're part of it, the fruit it's happening to the yeah. fruit. It grows. It doesn't start with me. And it doesn't end with me. It doesn't, I'm not initiating it. Um, and we'll go back to this in a moment when I talk about the two steps back. Um, that whole concept of the two steps back. The, the law, though, is what. Um, the law is what God uses to create the despair to bring us to the place where we can accept His grace. That, that's the way. That's the. That's the way I see the law. The knowledge that we can't love our neighbor as ourselves. We can't. Right. We can't keep it. Love God with all our heart and all our mind and all mm-hmm. our soul. We, we. We can't do mm-hmm. any of those things. And so everyone would agree, especially before being a Christian, that can't be the case. And so the debate would be after I'm a Christian. Yeah. You know, do what at what place do I contribute in that? And so, I think we're going way upstream with that. And I, I'm, again, thank you for for bringing that up. And that that is the debate. I mean, it truly is the debate. Um, and so, one side of the Reformation wants to say there's only two uses of the law. Do you know this terminology? Uses of the law. There's the Lutherans or some Lutherans. Some Lutherans say three uses, but there's there's three uses versus two. So the first use is law is sort of a good thing in society. You know, stop signs, um, gravity. That's kind of a law. It kind of keeps us safe, kind of keeps us in place, and that's a good thing. The second use is the one Mary's bringing up, that kind of accusatory. The law is sort of a insurmountable goal. I can't do this, God. I can't. And here's where the debate comes in. The third use, the third use is, John Calvin would be someone that really, that really presses, but some people say Luther, too. The third use of the law is that law becomes a guide on how to live a holy life. So that's the debate on whether or not there's two uses or three uses. Um, I'm kind of a two-use guy, but that's neither here nor there. All right, well, well, thank you. Um, so I- any more questions on the concepts before we go a little further? Theologian of the glory, theologian of the cross. we got the law. The law is the big debate. Um, okay, so, so we know the rich young man is a theologian of glory. We're theologians of glory. St. Peter is a theologian of glory. St. Paul, probably, he was a theologian of glory. He was a Pharisee. He was totally a theologian of glory. Um, and over time, we, we want to become a theologian of the cross, and that's not something we can consciously do. I think it comes through good, uh, the Holy Spirit going through His Word and preaching and teaching. But um, I brought another thing to help, and I don't know if y'all have seen this before. This little story called Franny and Zoe. It's by J.D. Salinger. J.D. Salinger, um, Catcher in the Rye, kind of a classic, uh, which I have to admit, I have not read Catcher in the Rye. But uh, Franny and Zoe um, was two short stories that came out in The New Yorker, 1955, 1957, something like that. Um, and he's compiled them, and it's a story together. But there's a passage from it I really want to read, and uh, I think it's very telling for what we're talking about, this idea of being brought to despair. So after that first step forward, you know, the rich young man, 
I've kept the law. I've done all the good things. Best foot forward. I'm going. I'm progress. And then that despair of, oh, I've got to go sell everything. Oh, I haven't done everything. Oh, I even my best doesn't do anything for me. So, so Franny uh, is the first short story. Franny and Zoe, they're, they're brother and sister. You'll, you'll come to find out if you ever read it. Um, but Franny's really short. I think it's like 40 pages. And Zoe's the remaining like 100. Very short, very quick read. I mean, you can knock it out in probably two hours. Um, Franny is a very successful college student. Um, she's a theater uh, major, I think. She's an actress. And she's in this like upper crust kind of world. Everybody's, um, you know, middle, upper middle class, maybe upper class. Um, spick and span, I mean, perfect. And she's, she's tired of it. She's tired of competing. She's tired of living. And she's good. She's good at what she does. So she's talking to her boyfriend, uh, Lane, over lunch. And Lane is one of these college types. You know, he's the editor of his school newspaper. He is um, right under the professor's nose all the time, and he's he writes all the best papers. You know, he's and he's just talking about how great he is at this. And then they get on her somehow, and you know, I want to read this to you. She says, "I'm not afraid to compete. It's just the opposite. Don't you see that? I'm afraid I will compete. That's what scares me. That's why I quit the theater department." Just because I'm so horribly conditioned to accept everybody else's values, and just because I like applause and people to rave about me, doesn't make it right. I'm ashamed of it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of not having the courage to be an absolute nobody. I'm sick of myself and everybody else that wants to make some kind of a splash. So that's her kind of being honest with, I'm tired of the, the world of competition. I'm tired of the, the world of projected selves. I'm tired of the world of best foot forward. I just want to be a nobody. And she's not a nobody. I mean, she's good. Um, she's really good at what she does. But she's she's sick of being in that, that world where we constantly have to perform. We, we constantly have to live up to a standard. We have to, in some ways, create a standard, a new standard. We have to up the ante every time. Um, she says, I'm tired of it. I want to be an absolute nobody. And so her, her answer really is despair. She does. She goes into a mental breakdown. Um, she's very sick. She's not eating. Um, and we, maybe some of us have been there before. Maybe we felt... Um, at whatever stage in life, I, I can think about, you know, I work with junior high kids here. Um, they're in that world, and, and no one's immune from it. I, I kept thinking in junior high, once I get to high school, everyone's going to kind of be cool and, and not compete all the time. Everybody's going to be happy with who they are and do do their subjects and their studies and, and whatever they do. But it turns out every, every, every time you graduate and go to a new thing, from, from high school to college, it's the same thing, and it just gets worse, really. It just gets worse because uh, adults can be more creative about how they put their best foot forward. Kids are a little bit more blunt and honest. Um, so at junior high, it starts, you know, if you don't make the basketball team, or if, you, uh, or if you're not making straight A's, or, you know, you can think of all the things that junior high kids have to go through, um, impressing their parents. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a way of putting our best foot forward, projecting itself. High school gets worse. College gets worse. I'm in seminary now, and it's, it is awful. And you would think, oh, seminary, it, sh- it should be, you know, it should be that way. Grad school is awful. I mean, grad school is another place just to prove ourselves. But the reason seminary is so bad, and I'm not immune from it. I have to repent of that and pray that that God brings that away from me. But it takes on kind of a holy roller kind of attitude. You know, it's not just grad school. It's like, oh, I'm in seminary. I'm, I'm better than. Uh, it's awful, uh, and I deal with it all the time. So, so Franny is speaking to me. I mean, Franny, I, I, I know that I want to be an absolute nobody because I'm tired of this world of competition. But she goes into a, a nervous breakdown. And, and picks up the closest thing she knows that she can that will kind of serve her. It's, she had an older brother who was into kind of mysticism and, and, and different things, and he, she picks up this old Orthodox, um, like Russian Orthodox book, and starts doing the Jesus Prayer. Are you familiar with the Jesus Prayer? It's a short prayer. It says, 
It's a very, I mean, it's one sentence. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so in the Orthodox tradition, they pray that over and over and over and over. And it's almost like breathing. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, and so she picks that up. She's praying that. And that's sort of her therapy. She's, she's you know, reconstructing herself as a prayer. And then at the end of the, I won't give away the whole story, but um, at the end, her brother deconstructs that part of her. He says, look, your religious self is just another self that's trying to create itself and be something. It's just trying to be something. Uh, and so he deconstructs her there. And at the very end, she realizes, I don't have to compete for anybody. Or I don't have to compete or perform for anybody because at the end of the day, the only one that really cares, the only one that's really watching, the only one that matters is Christ himself. It's beautiful. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. It's beautiful. Anyways, I, I wanted to bring that up to say, even our and Candace Schneider brought this out beautifully today. He talked about our churchmanship. He was, I mean, he was talking right at Mr. Seminary over here. Uh, and, and anybody who kind of takes pride at being at the Advent or being, you know, an evangelical Episcopalian or conservative, or I don't want to put words in your mouth on what you are and how you describe yourself, but um, even those religious parts of us that we think are good, that's still not, it's still being a theologian of glory, thinking that we can put our best forward uh, as if it were anything in God's sight. So Franny and Zoe, um, Gerhard Ferdy and Luther, and of course, I mean, the, the paradigmatic case of the rich, rich young ruler. And one last thing I want to think about and talk about, um, we've still got a few minutes, but we'll, we will end early, um, is this notion of St. Paul talks about, he talks about the law a lot. He's kind of the one that really gets us debating on what the law is, um, although the rabbis did too, the, the Jewish rabbis. But in, in Galatians, he's gone through this, this idea of what the law is and what it's supposed to do. At the end, he says, um, I think it's Galatians 6, 6, he says, for freedom's sake, Christ has set us free. For freedom's sake, Christ has set us free. So this is that freedom that Franny's talking about and she experiences, the freedom of being a theologian of the cross and saying, even my worst parts, God is killing on the cross and giving me a new self. That's the freedom um, that we don't have to compete, we don't have to produce, we don't have to chase after some standard. It's already been met for us. Um, so I've, I've used a, a few examples for that, and I hope that uh, they've been convincing. But I hope that you can feel that freedom. I hope that freedom comes to you and says, you know, whatever, whatever profession you're in, uh, whether you're retired or, or whatever you're doing, um, that freedom of having to constantly do something, or that not the freedom, the being bound to that, uh, Christ brings us freedom from that. So if you've got a nine to five job or you've got kids or you've got grandkids or you've got a spouse, I mean, those are all places too where we can compete. And uh, I mean, none of us are immune from that either. Even even in a marriage, even in a family with, with, with kids and um, with parents, we still compete and we still feel the need to project ourselves and, and be better than someone. Christ is freeing us from that. So those two steps backward that we experience in life, so here we are at the new year. Maybe you had a good Christmas. I had a pretty good Christmas. I, this is actually one of the books I got. And inevitably, whatever you last read is the thing you're obsessed with. I don't know if y'all are that way. It's like whatever show you're watching, it's all you think about. Whatever you know, whatever you're reading, that's that's what you're into. So I mean, this is fresh. Um, but I mean, we're watching The Walking Dead now. I have to confess, it's embarrassing to say, but like, it's uh, we think about it a lot. And we talk about it, but we will. I mean. Um, it brings up a lot of like ethical, you know, who are you kind of questions, you know, at the end of the world, you know, how do you act? Anyways, whatever you're most most into recently is what you're obsessed with. But um, that freedom that Franny feels at the very end, that that breath of fresh air, and I think this is the way you can tell a good preacher. This is this is the note. There's a little secret for you. If at the end of a sermon, you can do that. That's a good sermon. That's that's good news. If you can physically, palpably say, Amen. And just be like, yes. Not that it's ended, but that I feel good about what he said. I, God loves me despite myself. 
if a sermon at the end you're going, oh, I got to do something, or oh, I don't feel, if you're you know, physically leaning back, that's a sign of a bad sermon. Stay away from those kind of sermons. Um, but this, that freedom, it makes you sigh and say, thanks be to God. That's all I've got. Any other thoughts or questions? Do you know who that, that pastor was that he mentioned in the sermon? What's her name? He never gave Oh, her. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, um, I, okay, that's good, yeah. Um, at Mockingbird this year, she's speaking. Her name is Nadia Bowles-Weber. B-O-L-Z, I think it's hyphenated, and then Weber. Yeah, she's out there. She's she's good. She, um, I think she's in Minnesota. She's a Lutheran pastor, ELCA, um, really good. And she's speaking at Mockingbird. And I think um, she's Nadia Bowles Weber. She wrote a book called Pastrix, um, which I think is kind of tongue in cheek. Um, I, I can't remember the. It's not a pun, but it's um, it's kind of a, fi- a feminist kind of sounding thing. But it's kind of her memoir of, of how she came to faith, I think, and how it became so a pastor. Do what now? Well, I don't think the sermons are so saucy. I think they're they're pretty clean. Yeah, I think that's what he was trying to say. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now maybe her stand up or whatever else she does. Um, we were just we YouTubed her the other day, and um, what was it? She was speaking at like a conference or something. I don't know, and I don't remember what she said, but it was it was good. Look her up. She's great. Um, yeah. Good thought. All right. Well, I'll close this in prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thanks for bringing these folks here. Thanks for um, just the community that give us. We can smile at each other and say, um, I know that you're loved and I know that I'm loved uh, and we're here together. So thanks for bringing us, Lord. And thanks for this good news that all um, all that we offer, all the, all the best parts of us is nothing. We don't have to stress about that, Lord. You've given us the freedom to say, I can be an absolute nobody and that's okay. In Christ's name, amen.